the real men in this room who went to the retreat in spite of the snow. Guys, this was a men's retreat, not a women's retreat, not a sissy's retreat. And, you know, some of you guys, you decide you'd rather be a sissy and be alive instead of be a real man and dead in the road. I don't know what's gotten in you. Uh, I have to admit, if I hadn't been a speaker, I'm not sure I'd have been there. <laughs> I tried to talk Brian Nern out of it, you know, and he said, no, nah, no problem. And, of course, all the way up there, Nern's calling me about every five minutes. You sure we shouldn't turn around and go back? Well, you're brave, Brian. Really something. You made it. You made it. Good for you. All right. Guys, turn to Habakkuk. He's somewhere around page 1492. I think that's an important uh, year in American history. It should be easy to remember. Uh, 1493 is actually chapter 3. You know, this year uh, we are talking about what Stephen Covey calls the uh, eighth habit of a highly effective person. And that habit is that a man will find his voice. Uh, and that's really important to be effective. To find out what is your voice? What's your angle on life? What's your contribution? What is your belief system that comes to bear on everything that you're dealing with in life? You've got to find your voice. And uh, some of it is a matter of age. You know, when you get up in your 40s, it's a little easier to find your voice than if you're in your 20s. Uh, because, you know, finding your voice comes through experience, too, trial and error. But it's something we all want to be, be aiming for so that we know who we are, we know what we believe, we know what we can contribute, we know where we stand, and all the rest. And uh, the prophets are helping us find our voice because they had to do it for themselves and then they were communicating it to an entire nation and asking the nation to find its voice. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, it's one thing to have your voice when things seem to be going well and when your advice seems to be paying off. And it looks as though what you believe, what your convictions are, seem to be validated and certified by circumstances themselves. You know, uh, if you tell the truth, you're going to succeed. You know, so you tell the truth and now you're making multiple millions and Oh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful life. You know, you found your voice. Finally, you're successful. And everybody who wants to be successful ought to follow you. The problem is when you have a voice and you know what your voice is, but things are falling down around your earlobes, it's kind of difficult to say, you know, come follow me and be a disaster like me. Um, but, yeah, sometimes when you have your voice, when you really know who you are, what you're about, what your mission is, you know what your core values are, and you know what your contribution is, and you're making it, whether it's in the workplace or the city or your church or wherever it may be. Uh, once you find your voice, sometimes that voice doesn't seem to lead to immediate success. And when that happens to you, you begin to wonder if you really had the voice or not. And you've got some options. Uh, you can change what you believe and your core values or at least what you're communicating and how you're behaving. Or you can take your voice to another level of understanding and of depth of insight. Habakkuk was confronted with this. He was a prophet. He had a voice. He knew who God was. And because of that, he started to ask some questions. Remember in chapter 1, God, I believe in You and in Your righteousness and Your holiness. You cannot look upon iniquity. You cannot tolerate wrong. That's who You are. Therefore, God, how can You look upon Your people, Israel, which today we could say would be the church. How can you look upon your church, people calling yourself, themselves by your name, and they're doing these wicked things against each other, against other people, all the immorality and idolatry. How can you look upon this and tolerate it? And God says, well, I can't. Oh, well, good. I guess I was right on that. And God says, 
here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to send these more wicked Babylonians to come and devastate the land. And at that point, Habakkuk, who had a voice, could have said, whoa, I'm not sure I want to stand up with that one. You've, got, you've taken this thing another step, God. I'm not sure I believe in that, in our being disciplined by someone more wicked than ourselves. And Habakkuk raises the second question. God, how can you do this? I thought you were holy. How can you take an unholy nation and, and discipline a little less unholy nation with them? And remember, Habakkuk said, I'm just going to stand here. I'm going to stand here in my place, and I'm going to wait. For an answer. And he gets it. And that is, God is God. And he will take care of those Babylonians in due time. Because he is the judge of all the earth, all the nations. Not one nation can say, we were out from under your judgment, out from under your direction. We were not accountable to you. Every nation, every religion, everybody is going to be accountable to the God of the Bible. Everybody. And he said, there are no exceptions. So if I use someone more wicked than yourselves to discipline you, believe me, I'll take care of them later. So then we come to chapter 3, and we're going to find how Habakkuk deepens his voice. He had a voice from the very beginning. It was the voice that caused him to ask the question in the first place. It is only the theist who's got a problem with evil, really. Uh, Everybody else, as we saw in previous studies, They've they've got an easy out. They don't have to deal with these deep theological and philosophical questions. It's the theist who believes God is holy and is related to his universe who's got the problem. So Habakkuk had a voice, got him in in trouble in the first place, asking all these questions, just like we do. And when he kept getting God's answers, he kept taking him deeper. And now he's at the point where we're going to see whether he decides to receive what God has told him or not and what it does to his voice. So let's look at chapter 3. And with your voice, when you get challenged with the difficulties of life, you've got a choice to make, too. You can change what you're saying, change what you're believing, change how you're acting, or you can take that voice to a deeper level. Let's look at it then, Habakkuk 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigianoth. You say, oh, good. Sandy's going to tell us what Shigianoth means. I have no idea. <laughs> but I think it has something to do with music. There's a footnote there. Yeah, it says probably a literary or musical term. Thank you a lot, editors. That helps a lot. But this was a song. And the reason was this is such a famous chapter with such wonderful content. Let's put it to music so that it stays in the church forever. That's basically what we were saying. Put this to music. We need to sing this song, this voice that Habakkuk got. He needs to do this in worship. Here we go. Verse 2. Lord... I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? 
You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music, on my stringed instruments. There you have it. Okay, we're going to see how Habakkuk overall goes from fear to faith. The first thing we want to see in these first three verses is, if we're going to go from fear to faith, we've got to learn how to pray. We've got to learn how to seek the Lord. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does in verses 1 through 3. First of all, you'll see that prayer itself involves humbling ourselves. We're just simply told a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk didn't get up and ask any more questions, didn't make any more complaints, didn't give God any more sermons about God's holiness, reminding him of his character. Here he simply humbles himself in prayer. This is the condition of the one who is really getting his voice at the deepest level. No argument, no protest, but submission to the will of God. It is an acknowledgement that God's way is right. This is God's judgment, and it is right, and I need to make no excuses for it, and I don't need to defend myself anymore. And you'll notice that now we come, and Habakkuk is not making these comparisons of relative righteousness between Israel and Babylon. Because that relative righteousness makes no difference at all when you're in the presence of perfect righteousness, namely God Himself. And all the human comparisons that we make just kind of vanish in the presence of seeing God as He is. And usually when we're defending ourselves, we'll say, well, I'm not as bad as old so-and-so. I mean, that's what I say about Nern. I'm not as bad as Nern. And it makes me feel better. Right, Brian? I do that all the time. Yeah, uh-huh. And... So we'll always pick somebody out, you know, say, well, he cheats a little bit more on his taxes than I do. Or I'm nicer to my wife than he is. Or something like that. It's relative righteousness. And when we make those kinds of judgments, uh, we obviously do not have God in mind. Because when we have God in mind, those things become completely irrelevant. They don't matter anymore. And that's what happened to Habakkuk. It doesn't matter that his nation is a little better than the other nation. 
It doesn't matter that he's lived a good life. It doesn't matter because now he sees God in his holiness and he knows that his judgments are true. Let me give you an example. If you leave your finger there and turn back to Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll get this on, or let's, let's look first at Isaiah chapter 5. This is a page 1080. Page 1080. And uh, here you have Isaiah who lived pretty close to the time of Habakkuk. And Isaiah is now pronouncing woes on certain evil people. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That is, you finally bought all the tenements and owned them all and drove everybody else off and you're there all by yourself. You're so wealthy. That's how bad these, some of these rich people are. Turn the page. He says in verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with the wine. Those of you who just say, Thank God it's Friday and now we're into party time. And... Isaiah says, woe to you. You've obviously missed the whole purpose of human life. To you, life consists of waiting for the next party. And you've forgotten the poor. You've forgotten your responsibilities. You've forgotten worship. You've forgotten your family. You've forgotten all kinds of things I've given you to do. Woe to you, he says. Verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Those whose lives are just full of wickedness. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Those who are perverting the Scriptures to say the exact opposite of what the Scriptures actually say. It's one of the worst evils that one can do in society. Uh, if we were to, to uh, really be activists, militant activists, one thing we probably ought to do is chain some church doors so people can't get in because the very truth is being perverted. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Those who are filled with pride, think they're very clever, are very impressed with themselves, enjoy looking in the mirror on a morning. That's hard to believe looking around this room, but that's true. Verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks and who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent who are on the take who can be influenced with dollars and distort justice because they're making a living out of perverted justice. And they deny justice, mishpat, to the poor. They deny the right of everyone to be loved by God's people and to seek for an adequate distribution of resources in our society. Woe to those people, he says. Now Isaiah's on a tear. <laughs> you got one Spirit-filled preacher on that Sunday morning. I'm telling you, what, everybody was kind of ducking. You know, the wind was blowing back on their hair. You know, you know, he's sitting there in the pew. And they're saying, man, Isaiah's been reading Jonathan Edwards lately. Look at this guy. He's really going to school here. And then King Uzziah, who had been the king over 50 years, he dies. And now just imagine. Uh, you know what it's like? Some of you were around when John F. Kennedy died. And, you know, he'd only been in office a thousand days. And it was just such a great tragedy. We felt like we were alone, didn't know where we were going. This guy had been king for 52 years, I think it was. That's a long time. Most people did not know another king in their entire lives, and he dies. So that brings a real sense of calamity to the nation. What's going to happen to us now? real sense of sadness. You know, another whole era, half century has gone by now. And so Isaiah does the logical thing. He looks to the Lord. And when he looks to the Lord in Isaiah 6, he gets more than he bargained for. He gets the Lord Adonai high and lifted up. 
the train is uh, uh, the robe of his the train of his robe is so long it fills the temple because his holiness is so great. And there are seraphs in this vision who are singing to the Lord, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the temple thresholds shook. The doorposts and thresholds shook. This is quite a scene in the holiness of God. So now Isaiah sees God in His holiness. Now look where the woe goes. If you'll look in verse 5, next page, page 1084 at the top. Woe to me! Woe to me! He says, I am ruined! That is, coming apart at the seams, literally. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is undone when he sees the holiness of God, not about the sins of Israel, but about his, the preacher's, sins. And a preacher uses his lips to make a living. And that's the very thing Isaiah points to. Not just Isaiah, but Isaiah's lips, his preacher's lips. They're unclean. And he's uncovered because he has seen the King. He has had a vision of the Holy One. And you don't find him pronouncing a woe on anybody but himself. And that's what's happening to Habakkuk. He is finding his voice, finding out what it means to be a man in his own day as he gets closer and closer to God, understands more of God's sovereignty, as we have seen already in these first two chapters, and understands even more of God's holiness. It is transcendent beyond even what Habakkuk had known. And in the light of that holiness, it just ceases all questions. And you'll find, really, that our deepest questions are answered in worship when we have a sense of the holy presence of God. That's exactly what's happening to Habakkuk. We humble ourselves and now we simply go to prayer. You know, often we'll say, you know, somebody will ask us, well, how you doing? We'll say, oh, better than I deserve. Then the first, the first slob that crosses your path and, and mistreats you, you're all over it. <laughs> you're going to get that sucker. You're going to take care of him. What happened to this better than I deserve deal? You know, it's become a slogan. When Habakkuk saw the Lord, it was no longer a slogan. It was real. It was deep. And it changed his attitude toward everything. And what you find, of course, is when someone who has been in the presence of, when someone has been in the presence of God really knows him, they really do have a voice. Because no longer are they trying to justify their own existence. No longer are they trying to make themselves out to be better than somebody else. They know we're all in this together. And God alone is God. So a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, who has now been humbled. We take our eyes off the Chaldeans and now we look to the Lord. Habakkuk had had his eyes on the Chaldeans. That was the problem. It was the Chaldeans. It was the terrorists. It was these people from Iraq, literally. That's the problem. And then he got a theology lesson and a spiritual lesson when God showed up. You realize, no, the problem is not the Iraqis. The problem is God. <laughs> the problem is me in the presence of God. That's the problem. We're all sinners. So let's just simply humble ourselves. Well, let, me, let me give you another example. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 5, and you'll find that on page 
1653. And here in the Gospel, we have this amazing event when Jesus tells them to go out fishing. They say, we've already been fishing. Fished all night, didn't catch a blooming thing. But okay, Lord, carpenter, who thinks he knows what fishing really is, just because you said so, we'll go out there and fish. And they haul in so many fish, they almost sink. So uh, on page 1653, you'll see Luke 5, 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And this is what you, you often find. That when we see the Lord, we become aware of ourselves in a new and deeper way. And we stop saying, you know, I could really have a good marriage if she would just give me some more sex. Or, you know, if she'd just do something with her life and, and just help around the house a little bit, we could be really happy. Or, you know, if she were just more, if she'd just lose 20 pounds, we could have a great, no, cut the crap. The problem is you're looking at somebody else instead of looking to the Lord in prayer. When you do, it ends all that stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with relative righteousness, whether you're a better husband than she is a wife, or, you know, I can handle my children at this, that, and the other. And you have all these personal hurts and all this crud that's been built up over the years. You need some spiritual strippies that comes with just a vision of the Holy One of Israel. Let's look, for example, since you're at Luke, we just turn over a few more pages to Hebrews chapter 12, and this is on page 2000. And, of course, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but he sure gives us some great guidance here. He says in Hebrews 12:1 on page 2000, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons from Proverbs. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children. Literally in the Greek it says a bastard. Then you're a bastard and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So there you have it. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what God is doing in this life that is bringing to you the difficulties that seem to be discrediting your Christian voice, au contraire, hop along, it probably is 
crediting your voice because your voice is that God is in charge of the universe. I'm his kid and he will do with me as he wills. And everything is working out together for the good, especially when it's painful. We learn a special lessons when we screwed up and got whacked for it. And that's the way the Lord is. So instead of complaining about the Chaldeans, get your eyes off the Chaldeans and get your eyes to the Lord in prayer and look to Him alone. When Peter said to Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, Hey, Jesus, isn't that cool? You're just walking on the water. I've never seen anybody do that before. Hey, can I try it? And Jesus says, Come on. (laughs) Would you have done that? I mean, I don't know. Peter, so Peter starts walking on the water. And then we're told when he saw the waves, he started to sink. When he looked at the waves, when he looked at the Chaldeans, when he looked at the problems, and he tried to define his existence in view of the problems, he started to sink. It was only when he got his eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ that he was rescued from sinking. So you're in the wind and the waves. You start staring at the wind and the waves. And you start assessing that. That becomes the dominant. That becomes the God. The angry God in your life or your circumstances. You start looking at that and and comparing your strength to the strength of those problems. You sink. You drown. You get your eyes off of it and go to prayer. This is exactly what Habakkuk did. The most important verse probably in this whole chapter is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Now, you'll notice he starts to praise the Lord. He says, I stand in awe, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. And we'll notice that he stands in awe of a couple of things. Number one, the Lord's name alone is awesome. Lord, or in Hebrew it would be Jehovah. Jehovah, Yahweh, which comes from the word we studied a few years ago in Exodus. I am that I am. That's what it means. He is self-sufficient. It's called the aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, of God. Completely self-sufficient. Inherently comprehensive. Doesn't need anything on the outside of himself for his satisfaction, for his power, for his glory. The aseity of God, one of the most beautiful concepts that is given to us in the Scriptures. And he is awed by his name. I am that I am. He's also awed by his deeds. And why is he awed by his deeds? Because he's been in the business of praise for a number of years and he has come become familiar with the deeds of God. And that's exactly the reason that we become experts in praise because to be an expert in praise, you have to be an expert in his name. What does his name mean? And there are numbers of names for God in the Old Testament. God the provider, God the healer. Come up with all. In fact, people used to do formal theology by simply taking the names of God and exegeting them all. And then you come up with the character of God. Uh, it's not typically done that way anymore, but the older theologians used to do that. So we want to be in awe of his name. Who is he? And then we want to be in awe of his deeds. What has he done? So the person and the work of God is what keeps us in slack-jawed, awestruck wonder every day of our lives when we're thinking straightly. problem is we don't always think straight. We start looking at waves and hear the wind and... And get terrified. But when we get our heads straight, we're awestruck by the character and the history of the deeds of God. Now, what is Habakkuk talking about? Well, think about his deeds. Habakkuk had the Pentateuch. 
So he knew about creation. And I'm sure they had some evolutionists in their day too. They've always been around. People who would try to dismiss the creative power of God taking, making something out of nothing. Try that trick someday. See how well you do with that. Making something out of nothing. And Habakkuk had that book. And he was awestruck by a Lord who can speak and cause it to come into being. <laughs> that's, a, that's an awesome God. And he was awestruck by the fact that he took his people Israel in all their sin and wickedness and stupidity and led them out of bondage in Egypt. And they were complaining the whole way. And he divides the Red Sea, lets them through, closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians. He was awestruck at the deeds of God. He was awestruck that God would gather them at Mount Sinai and make a nation out of them and give them laws and give them a leader unlike any other nation on the face of the earth. He was awestruck with that. He had the book of Joshua, and he knew that God had held back the Jordan so that the children of Israel could go into the promised land against people who were armed, who were dangerous, who were fortified. He was awestruck at the deeds of God. He knew from the book of Joshua that when God has His people in battle, He will even make the sun stand still that they can finish the battle. What a God that is! He was awestruck at the power of God. And he was awestruck because he read his Bible. He was awestruck because he gave himself to the study of God, which is what theology properly means. And that's the reason we study the Bible, so that we'll continually be awestruck. And that is getting our head back. And that's how we get our voice back. You can't have a voice that really has leverage and will change culture and honor God until you're praising Him and you're awestruck with it. Now, what do you do when you get awestruck? Then you lift up your voice and you praise Him. And He starts talking to Him. Lord! I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of you. Gentlemen, we are simply going to have to learn to open our mouths and talk to God about God. And you'll notice in this prayer, the first thing he does is praise God. And when we open our prayer, open our mouths to pray, usually the first thing is, God, I've got an important meeting this morning. Would you please help me? Now, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. But if that's the sum and substance of your prayer life, there's something wrong with it. Because you're not awestruck. Who are you talking to? You're talking to a king. And you remind the king how great he is and why you're asking him. The grounds for your request are rooted in the awesome character and power of the one to whom you're speaking. You might remind him of that. Look, God, I don't know if you thought about this lately, but you're incredible. <laughs> Let him know that he is the grounds for your even making the request. And let's get it straight. Who has the power and who doesn't? Habakkuk didn't have the power and he knew it. That's the reason chapter 3 is so lovely because now he's asked all of his questions and now he's, he's prostrate before the Lord and giving him the praise and glory. If you look in your Scriptures, you'll see how important worship is. In fact, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. He says it seven times that they may worship me. The original reason God wanted to let the people go, it was just to go out for a little festival. And then they'll come back and be slaves. Now, of course, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so they wouldn't be slaves anymore and they'd be free. But the initial request was to go out there and have a worship service with all the people and let them come back because God cares about worship. And when his people are in slavery and they're not worshiping, you're really getting ticked off. And so they went to Pharaoh to ask for freedom of worship. You look in the Ten Commandments. And the first one, have no other gods before you. 
Fourth one, keeping the Sabbath holy. They're all about worship and, and giving God His due. Look at that middle book in your Bible, the Psalms, 150 songs. Not just this one in Habakkuk 3 that's made, put to music. 150 of them were put to music. Why? They're about the character of God from all different circumstances in life. Some people rejoicing, some people suffering, some people in bondage, some people free. And they're all praising God in the Psalms. It's about God from different human perspectives and experiences. So you see worship in there. And then you get to Jesus. What does He say? He says the time has now come and is now the hour has come and is coming when the Father will uh, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers will seek will somebody help me will worship the Father in spirit and in truth and this is the point I want to make for the Father seeketh such to worship Him now Jesus seeks and saves the lost. We have that language in the New Testament. The only place where you find the Father seeking, it's worshipers. He is seeking men who will be awestruck by His name and His deeds and will say so. Think about that. That's what all of human history is about. It's a stage wherein God selects men who will praise Him. That's what it's all about. So let's get good at it. And that means we need to study who He is and what He has done and then learn how to speak of it. Then we petition the Lord. In verse 3, here's the petition. Or actually, that's not verse 3. That should be 2B. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So what is he petitioning the Lord for? First of all, to renew this great work today. Lord, you made something out of nothing. You divided the Red Sea. You held the Jordan back. You made the sun stand still. Do it today. That's the prayer. And that is a petition of a man who is very consciously in the presence of the Holy God. That's his petition. Renew your great deeds in our own day. Why? So that God is worshipped in our day too. Believe me, after the Red Sea divided, the Israelites went through and watched every last Egyptian drown. There was a worship service. You read Exodus 15, you'll find out. They worshiped God. They wrote a song about it. New music came up. The musicians were put to work. You guys get going. Write us a song. We ought to sing about this. Get your best poets going. We ought to worship God with a deed like that. You can believe it. When the Jordan was held back and when the walls of Jericho came down, man, they had a worship service. God did something great. And this is what Habakkuk is saying. Lord, do it today. Do it in Memphis today. Change this city today. Give us racial reconciliation today in our generation. Lord, give us economic justice in our day, in our generation. Lord, help us to reach and serve the poor in our generation. Lord, give us honesty in politics and reconciliation with our politicians today. Lord, give us an employment rate that's really low, that's for everybody today. Lord, raise up true teaching in the churches today so that people are told who you really are today. Lord, renew it in our day. That's the prayer of someone who's been in the presence of God. Now, notice what Habakkuk didn't pray for. Lord, um, now I know that we deserve, I mean, my day is better than I deserve. I know that. Uh, but, Lord, um, could we just, 
would you help some of us escape? I mean, to be honest with it, with you, Lord, that, that's really what I, would you help me and my family to escape uh, when the Chaldeans come? I know everybody else deserves it, but and I know we deserve it too, but you would you just help us escape? Or, Lord, would you, would you just change your mind? I mean, could you just compromise your justice just a little bit? Oh, I'm so scared, Lord, help me! And you don't see a prayer list here for the sick. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the sick. James says, pray for the sick. He says, elders go anoint the sick and pray for them. Our job is to pray for the sick. Don't any of you who are, who are churchmen complain about praying for the sick. But if that is the dominant prayer, what does it suggest? That we're still looking at the Chaldeans. We're still looking at problems. We've really not been taken up yet with him. And you look at the Apostle Paul. Would you say the Apostle Paul was taken up with him? I would. Would you examine the Apostle Paul's prayers? He said, this is my prayer for you. That your love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. In Philippians or in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your mind will be enlightened to see this, that, and the other. The glory of your calling and so on. He's praying kingdom prayers. He's praying prayers that he knows will bring honor and glory to the God in whose presence he is thinking and speaking and living. And so our prayers are shaped by whether we're looking to the Lord or looking to the Chaldeans. So we ask for him to renew his work in our day and to remember mercy. We ask God, look, God, in the midst of your justice, you do mercy. And this is exactly the reason that David chose uh, he chose God's plague. Remember on Israel when he was given three choices? Remember some of those jokes when I was a kid, you know. Take these two choices and neither one of them is very good. That's kind of what David had. But he chose the plague because he said, Lord, I'd rather throw myself in your hands than in the hands of these crazy enemies I've got. Because he knew God was merciful. Sure enough, God did exercise justice and he exercised mercy. So just throw yourself in the mercy of God. It's mercy it's not deserved. Remember, the word mercy means undeserved. So you throw yourself on undeserved favor. And when you get it, of course, it leads to even greater praise. So this is what we must learn to do. Seek the Lord. That means get into his presence and not just thinking about the presence of the evil that you're facing. Secondly, you must learn how to fear the Lord. We're going to move real quick. Hang on. Put your seatbelt on. We fear him alone. And you've seen in these verses that we read that what Habakkuk is really doing is describing God as a warrior. And when his judgment comes, he's the one with the arrows and the spears. He's the one thundering on the horses, coming through the shallow water, ready to attack. And he basically is saying, regardless of whether it's the Chaldeans or the Assyrians or the Egyptians, it is ultimately God in his judgment. And so he fears him alone because God controls the affairs of men. We see that in this text and we see it in other texts. Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So the king makes judgments. The president of the United States makes judgments. But the heart of the president is in the hand of the Lord. And he controls it like a water course. He does whatever he wants to with the heart of the president. You say, oh, I wish he'd do a better job. The Lord is doing what he is doing working out righteousness on the earth in his way. And sometimes he'll use Chaldeans to do it. It's his business. And we see from the Proverbs that even when it looks like chance to us, 
It is controlled by the Lord. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So He controls the affairs of men. He controls nature. We see this from the text. And we find this in Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7, that He does whatever He pleases in the heavens and on the earth. He does whatever He wants to with nature. He controls all of nature. So we fear Him because He has control. And He is awesome in His power. And you pick that up in the text as well in verses 4 through 10. Now, when you get to verses 11 through 15, we see that not only do we fear Him, but we trust Him. Now, this is what the devil doesn't do. The devil fears Him too. But fears Him as one about to get whacked big time. Fears Him as one who is not loved but hated. We fear Him as one who is loved. We fear Him as one who is benevolent toward us, not malevolent. So our fear is very different from the devil's fear. It's very different from the non-Christian's fear. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you fear Him. If you're an unbeliever, you're stupid if you don't. But you're not quite sure whether He's benevolent towards you. And the only way you can be sure He's benevolent towards you is to receive the benevolent love of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you receive Christ, you're covered by the sacrifice of Christ and all your sins are taken away. God takes up residence in your heart. Let me tell you something. He is not an Indian giver. He comes into your life. He's benevolent to you now. You receive the gift of forgiveness. He'll be benevolent to you all the way to the end. Like a son, it doesn't always feel like it. You get spanked. You get disciplined. But he's benevolent towards you. Habakkuk knew this. And this leads to the final prayer we'll get to in a moment. And he sees that in his benevolence, he will destroy our enemies. And he will deliver us. You pick that up in verse 13, to race ahead. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. That is the king. So ultimately, God delivers his people and their leader. And of course, we know now we have the church and the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been delivered. And we have an anointed one who leads us. And that's exactly what God did. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. So it looked like when Jesus was on the cross... All was lost. But the fact of the matter is, we are told that having disarmed the principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So when it looked like we had lost, we had actually won. Because God had delivered us and saved us, delivered us out of bondage by absolutely conquering and vanquishing our worst enemy, the devil. Did it by the cross. Didn't look like it was a victory, did it? Until later... But it was. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is seeing is that, yes, okay, God, I'm being judged. I'm coming under discipline. I'm with these people. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And we're going to see the king. And some of us are going to get destroyed. Maybe maybe even the prophet will be destroyed. But, Lord, I have confidence and trust in your benevolence that somehow this is going to work out. This is the reason that Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Get this now. Even if he kills me, I still trust him. You say, well, killing me, that'd be the ultimate. Then it's all over. No, it's not over. That's the point. You can see beyond your own history in this short little three score and ten in this life into the ultimate goodness of God in eternal life. That's what makes all the difference. Now, lastly, we must learn how to rejoice in the Lord. So we learn to seek him. We learn to fear him. We learn to rejoice in the Lord. Look to the saints of old. Verse 16 
He's nervous. He's, his body is quaking. He says in verse 16, uh, next page here, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered, decay crept into my bones, my legs were shaking. You think that when you face difficulties, that your body doesn't react, your emotions don't react, you've got another thought coming, you haven't been in anything really fearful lately. So look at the saints of old. Our bodies and our emotions react to threats. My legs tremble. And they do. Being courageous or being trusting doesn't mean your legs don't tremble. And when you get into God's ministry, you're going to find your legs tremble a lot. When you're doing His work, it means you're going to be facing people who are hostile to His kingdom. You're going to get all kinds of messes. And Habakkuk was in one. So first of all, look to the saints of old. You know, you can look to great people in the past and their deeds. But you'll all, you always find they were afraid. The Apostle Paul says, I preach with fear and trembling. Paul says, I'm not a great preacher because I, I tend to shake. The Corinthians made him nervous. <laughs> this bold apostle. He said it with fear and trembling. And it was fear and trembling because he was before the Lord too, but he was probably experiencing physical, psychological results of normal fears in life. But then we start preaching to ourselves. I will wait patiently. Okay? Your knees are shaking. I will wait patiently for the Lord. That's about how you say it. That's, that is, there, that's courage. <laughs> right there, that's courage. That's what it is. I mean, these people who can bluster through uh, either are idiots <laughs> or they're far better men than I am. That's all I can say. Uh, probably the latter. Okay, I grant it. But we preached ourselves. Wait patiently for the Lord. Look at the long haul. Don't make judgments in this moment. Realize He's got a long-term plan with you, with your family, with your influence. He's got a long-term plan. You're going through something right now, but He's got a long-term plan. You wait patiently and see it played out. And I'm talking about beyond life on this earth, in this life. You get a long-term plan and wait patiently. And then we look beyond the immediate circumstances, even if they're disastrous. You look beyond them. You don't look at the wind and the waves. You look to Him and to hope. And gentlemen, this is exactly what Habakkuk did. It's exactly what the Israelites did. And this is exactly what the prophets taught them to do. This was finding their voice. Now look, the Babylonians come. They ransack Jerusalem. They slaughter many of the leaders. They take the king, kill his sons right in front of him, and gouge the eyes out of the king so that's the last thing he sees. They take pregnant women, rip their wombs open, and slaughter the fetuses. They're brutal. They take them, then whoever's left into exile, and they leave some of the poor, marginalized people in Israel because they don't matter to the Babylonians. But they take all the educated people off to Babylon. That's a long way. It's a long walk from Jerusalem to Babylon or to Iraq. It's a long walk. They make that long, long trek, trail of tears, all the way across the crescent circle over to Iraq. And they're there. And the Babylonians are saying to them, hey, sing us some of your cool songs. You know about, about Jehovah? And they say, Psalm 136, I think it is, or 139 maybe. Yeah, 139. How can we sing the songs of Zion when we're in bondage? How can we do that? How can we sing the songs of praise? They're just absolutely tortured. They get over there. They feel completely lost. They're in a new world. They're slaves. They're marginalized. They're out of it. But they have a prophet, Daniel, 
young man who was trained in Babylon. And he tells them, I have a revelation. We're going back after 70 years. So they're in exile. They're in misery. And Jeremiah tells them, look, you all live a responsible life there. You plant your gardens. You build houses. You get involved in the economy. You're in exile, but you pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. That's where you live, so do it. But I'll bring you back in 70 years. But don't just sit there and wait for the 70 years to come. You get busy and live a responsible life and serve your neighbor, love your neighbors yourself, and I'll bring you back in 70 years, and he does. Wait patiently for the Lord. It may not be you. It may be your grandchildren who experience revival. Wait patiently for him, and then he brings them back. And, of course, more gloriously, he sends his son. He dies on the cross, and it looks like all is lost, but they forgot about Sunday three days later. And he brings him back to life, raising up the whole church. And one day he's coming back again. We're in another provisional period. We're in Babylon. We're supposed to plant our gardens, build the city, pray for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. But he's coming back. He's told us he is. Wait patiently for the Lord. And when you do, you can enter into this last, um, this last few verses where he says, okay, I wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us, but... I'm telling you, though the fig tree does not bud, no grapes on the vine, no olive crops, no fields producing food, no sheep, no cattle, I will rejoice, I will be joyful. Why? Because he's looking to the Lord, the Lord's love and the Lord's strength. And the Lord's strength enables him. That's the reason the Apostle Paul can be in prison and say, I rejoice, and I'll say it again, I will rejoice. Because Christ is sufficient for me. God had told him when he prayed three times to be relieved of his misery, my grace is all sufficient for you. It'll make you strong. So Habakkuk found out when he looked not to the Chaldeans, but he looked to the Lord, he felt loved, he knew he was loved, and he was a new man, he was full of strength. Because he knew what was going to happen in the future. He knew that God's benevolent hand was upon him, taking him through this discipline to bring him to the place of hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great book of Habakkuk that it endures because it speaks not only to real people in real circumstances, but it is the eternal Word of God. We pray that you'll help us to apply this Word in our day just as Habakkuk did in his. That we may be awestruck in your presence and before men be the ones who have a voice that comes from eternity itself. The voice of God spoken through sinful, redeemed men into a day that desperately needs to know your love and your strength. This is our prayer. We make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great one.